1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, it's time to say goodbye, Benny. It's been so nice traveling with you. Thank you, Irene. I'm so excited and nervous. It's sure great to have you to talk to. Remember, I'll be watching for you on the big screen. Okay, Irene. Won't that be the day... Good
0: luck, Betty dear. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Dan.
1: Welcome back to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. I chose again one of my favorite movies, Mulholland Drive from 2001, of course, directed by David Lynch. We've talked about him a lot on the podcast. Dan, I don't know if you had seen this movie before and then rewatched it, but I know that um, you know I, I get on my David Lynch horse and kind of forced us to do this movie, and I'm I'm kind of dying to to know what you think.
0: So I went into this saying, all right, let me let me watch this. No one's home. Let me watch this movie on my big screen. Make Mike happy. And after about ten minutes, I was totally totally pulled in. Um, I think when I was younger, I would have liked this for different reasons than I like it now. I think when I was younger I would have loved it for for what you call red arrows red arrow videos. So let's let's tell the the listeners what is a red arrow video?
1: A red arrow video the perfect definition is is a video that claims to offer analysis about a movie on YouTube. On YouTube generally, but what it actually offers are just easter eggs. It's things that maybe they think are about the movie or are about parts of the movie, but don't get to the essence of the of the movie. And I think actually my frustration with Red Arrow videos is one of the reasons I want to do the podcast with you. And they often are entertaining. But we call them red arrow videos because they'll slow down a scene and then, you know, a red arrow points at the mirror and it's like the, the angle of reflection in the mirror is not exactly where the actor's standing or, you know, notice how many characters are wearing the color green in this scene. And it's like, okay, let's let's talk about what green means. But then they're off to, you know, number 12 or number 13 or whatever it is.
0: That's exactly what it is. They all have titles like 20 things you missed about Fight Club the first time. <laughs> and those kinds of things Or like when you watch The Prestige. Here's yes. all the things you missed about The Prestige. So, you know, David Lynch loves Red Arrow videos because this movie is filled with Easter eggs and Red Arrow videos. I learned that when the DVD came out, David Lynch put an insert in there called 10 Clues for Watching and Drive. And the first one is pay particular attention in the beginning of the film. At least two clues are revealed before the credits. Now I'm not denying him is fun. He's allowed to do whatever he wants. He wrote and directed the thing. My point is that somebody could make all the red arrows they want about this movie, including David Lynch himself. These red arrow videos do exist on YouTube. Now here's how you could tell that this was in the fantasy and this is the reality. But I think that's like explaining exactly the physics of the box and primer. That's the kind of thing that would interest me a lot when I was younger. And I would have been thrilled to find all those Easter eggs. And I think that's still kind of fun when you watch the movie again and you realize what's really going on. But the reason I really love this movie is because it's a great meditation on what movies do to you and how they work and the power of art. I think it's half A Star is Born and half The Wizard of Oz. And I think it's also 99% scarier than than all of the horror movies I've seen, save a few. Yeah, I think
1: this is about a different kind of existential dread, which is what if your dreams don't come true? And I think it's it's the kind of thing that gets scarier when you're in your 40s and 50s than it is when you're young, because there's still time for it to happen. or Or you think that you, when you're you think young, that, you're still betty you think that, that that's when you have the time of of most anxiety but i think that th- this movie is about it's it's a ghost story but what if you're haunted by unachieved ambitions and that's the ghost and that's that's like that's exactly the kind of like cs lewis numinous like i'm not sh- actually sure what would happen to me but i know i don't want it and i hope it stays in the other room
0: i hope i don't see the guy behind winkies and when i do it's terrifying why are you so afraid of that? I, I don't know. But but David Lynch told you he was going to jump out. He, t- he showed it to you. You've seen this. Yeah, I know. They totally told you there was a jump scare. I know, and it still terrified me.
1: Yeah, and, I, and you don't know what the bum behind Winkies is going to do. It's just, it's scarier than any other jump scare. Like, I don't actually think David Lynch knows how good he is. I think that he does things that interest him, and I like them for different reasons. But he so consistently... Amuses himself in the same way that I am consistently amused. I think that that's that's kind of the secret to his whole career trajectory.
0: Well, once you said to me he was a genius, and I said, "You, what do you mean by a genius?" And and you you meant not a mark of intelligence, but that book, like one of a kind. Yeah, I, I, he has a genius. Jonathan Swift, as an older
1: man, once uh, reread *Gulliver's Travels* and said, "What a genius I had then." What he meant was he he had the he knew that he had been kind of possessed by or possessed something that allowed him to see in a specific way so that you can't screw up. But without that specific, unique vision, he couldn't redo it. He couldn't think himself back into the younger man who had written it. And I think David Lynch gets possessed by these projects. He does them down to absolutely the last detail. And he has a tendency to work with some character actors over and over because they know how he works. And I think that he doesn't necessarily know what's going on in my brain as the viewer of one of his movies, and there's a disconnect there, but he does his thing. I do my thing, but I tend to like all of his stuff.
0: You know, what's funny what you said about his his genius that makes him different from other people is that if it were just Red Arrows and just Easter eggs, then he would be clever. But this movie and this movie is clever in many ways, but it's much more than being clever. So for example, when I first saw I think his name is Mr. Rourke, like the um the dwarf from Twin Peaks sitting in the in the chair with his long, I thought to myself, oh He's like Oz the Great and Terrible. He's like the man running Hollywood. He's the man behind the curtain, but he's just a really tiny guy. He's not super scary. And then I thought to myself, well, when you get to the answer, when you get to like two hours in the movie and then you find out the whole thing was a dream, I'm like, oh, that's also like The Wizard of Oz because, you know, it's like Kansas versus Oz. And the whole last 20 minutes is like, oh, you were there too. And you were there too. And then you start to do all the math in your head. And then I found out that forthcoming is a documentary called Lynch slash Oz. And it's all about David Lynch's love of the Wizard of Oz. And of course, in Wild at Heart, if you remember, Diane Ladd is like the Wicked Witch in the Wizard of Oz. So it's kind of funny that it's a movie about movies and it's built upon one of the most recognizable movies ever done. And in a movie trick, it was all a dream that would make us roll our eyes. But here totally works.
1: I think one of the reasons Lynch resonates with folks like us um and he he loves red arrows but his movies aren't red arrow fest is because the things that worry him are real things like if you think about racer head there's plenty of easter eggs in, in racer head and it's made lovingly over a number of years but it's about a real a real tension a real anxiety what if i'm a bad father right what what if this thing that's supposed to propagate the human species it's like it's built into me but i can't do it Um, you know, what, what if I felt this anxiety over this other human being, but I can't control any of the circumstances, you know, and, and that manifests itself visually. And, And this, if you take that same like career tension, what if I fail to launch, this is the eraser head, but instead of parenthood, it's, it's, you know, what if I, what if my dreams fail? And I think that dream failure or the structure of a dream, I mean, I think in like kind of the Lynchian mode, the thing that really makes this movie work is that it's. It's not based on, it's not a pastiche of the Wizard of Oz in the same way that something would be honoring the Wizard of Oz. What it is, it's a, it's a recognition that the Wizard of Oz itself is so powerful because it taps into something in the human mind. And he says, oh my goodness, that's that's like, that's the rabbit hole for how you get deep down into somebody's psyche. And what he does is he kind of takes the same exit off the turnpike as Wizard of Oz, but it's not a pastiche of something that just happens to be famous. It's a recognition of what makes it good.
0: Yeah, because The Wizard of Oz has, has red arrows all through it, right? But it's not just cute, right? So what song does Dorothy sing when she's in Kansas? Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Right. Now that's like you said, that taps into something very deep. You're a kid, but the place I live is boring. It's black and white or it's brown and white. It's sepia-toned, right? But somewhere over the rainbow is a different kind of place, right? Uh, the Beach Boys, I'm getting bugged driving up and down the same old strip. I'm going to find another place where the kids are hip. That taps into here because, right, what if right? my life actually turned out a different way? What if I could do that? And not only, not only what if my career turned out the way I wanted, but what if this terrible thing I've done I could somehow undo and that's and of course the blue key the the power that it has like
1: we're we're in the age where they continually try to reboot things right so what what makes this not a reboot of the Wizard of Oz but the reboot of Star Trek doesn't necessarily know what made original Star Trek good right it, it's 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 just trying to It's trying to leech off the property without being able to recreate that property success. I think David Lynch knows why certain things in movies are good and how to harness the same power. And a lot of that is visual structure scene by scene, but a lot of it is is, is actual structure in terms of how the movie's put together. And I think that's his genius. He, he he not only loves movies, he knows why he loves movies and is able to do similar things to the classics where you say, well, nobody will ever do that again. But he actually is able to do
0: it. And he does it so well because, of course, the first time you see Diane, who's not Betty, you can't believe how different she looks and how different she talks and how differently she's lived. And then, of course, you say to yourself, right, that's the point of the movie.
1: Both Diane and Betty are a construction and I can make her either one that I want, because there is no Diane and there is no Betty. There's an actress named Naomi Watts. But you know, and she can do whatever she wants. And I can do whatever I want with the camera and make her either or somebody else. And you're totally going to believe it, you're going to buy it. And I could even tell you what I'm going to do before I'm going to do it, but it's still going to work.
0: So welcome back. In part two, we like to talk about our favorite moments. Mike and I have no idea what each of us is going to offer the other guy. So Mike, what's a moment that you think represents this movie as a whole?
1: My moment is just my favorite scene, which is the failed or somewhat failed assassination um, that the that the junkie guy uh, pulls off when he, he kills the guy in the office and then has to go next door and kill the, kill the lady and, and drag her back and then ends up shooting the janitor and With each time is trying to make a, trying to make a getaway and I, I think I think it both ties together that like you have to have a suspicion of visual in all films but definitely in David Lynch you got to ask yourself why are we here you know what I mean like and I think the first time that you watch the movie and as you watch it through you say. I have no idea what this has to do with the rest of this movie, but when you find out, I think it's, it's actually truly poignant, but it also is really funny. It strikes me as, um, if there's, if there's specific pastiches going on, going on in this, it's violence, um, la uh, Quentin Tarantino, but done by David Lynch in order to be actually funny, right? It's it's how much gratuitous violence could I do in a short span um, with somebody who's a bumbling or glib, um, that would be funny, and it actually works just like a, a cut scene from from Pulp Fiction or something like that. Um, and I, I again, it's, it it ties in as an overall pastiche of Hollywood and specifically what was going on in the '90s, which had just ended, uh, but it still works and it's still funny and it's it's one of my favorite scenes. What's now, yours?
0: Of, of, well, I was going to say oh. now, of course, in in the uh, in the, the go back to the Wizard of Oz thing. Of course, that in her fantasy, it's because if only the the hitman were bumbling. Maybe he didn't write. Is that how you saw it? Like maybe, yeah, that's yeah. the red and hour, right? Maybe I think put...
1: I have a whole bunch of red hour stuff for the end that, that ties okay. into to, right. to that scene. But um, I, I think the the scene works by itself, meaning I, I get curious every time the scene comes on and I go like, wait, what does this have to do with it? Or did, did I miss something? But then you just get caught up and it's funny. Right. And right. so it's it. He, Lynch has this power to do stuff that both ties in with the themes, but it's not for the sake of the overall structure. It's just a, it's just a good scene.
0: So my moment, speaking of believing something is happening, is when Betty has her audition scene with that older actor, the guy with the spray tan. Oh, yeah. And why I love that is because earlier we see her rehearse that scene with Rita. And at first you hear them talking, you're kind of puzzled, like, what are they arguing about? And then you think, I actually thought, well, this must be the lines they said they would fax over. And it is. Now, what's great about that is that Rita is not supposed to be an actress. The first time you go through the movie, she's just this amnesia victim who was in a car crash, right? But the actual person, you know, Laura Herring has to play someone who's not an actor, but trying to be one. It's, it's like when De Niro has to play Jake LaMotta, play a good, good actor playing a bad actor. And they're reading those lines in the kitchen and they start laughing at the end. And it's like, you better get out. I'll call my father. And they seem really cheesy. And they seem like they're clearly from some like late night showtime, you know, um, softcore kind of like adults only movie. And you're like, well, this is just dreck. But I guess that's how you get your first part in Hollywood, right? Then we get to the actual audition scene and it's totally, totally different. So she says the exact same words that we just heard, but she says them differently and she looks different and she's so convincing and we know that it's artificial. Not only is it a movie, but but Lynch makes sure you understand they're in an office. They don't make her do the audition on a soundstage. They don't, they don't say, here's the set for the scene. There's just, he shows you there's people standing around watching them and they do the same exact lines. And then the scene is like, um, oh my, like, whoa, it's the same words. But when you bring Naomi Watts to it and you bring somebody that can make those words come alive, it, it, the whole thing works. And the movie constantly calls attention to that, like the power of art, like, you know, this isn't happening, but I'm still going to get, I am this is still going to affect you. I think one of the myths
1: that are are propagated by kind of like B plus artists are that it, it depends on the power of the artist to make things hang together. And I think what Lynch knows maybe better than anybody that I've ever watched a movie by is that it's, it's the power of the viewer it's that like i could violate all the rules i could violate every i could literally write all the rules down and violate all of them and you will buy into the credibility of this scene only for the reason that it's being projected like there's there's something in your brain as a viewer that happens when I put it up on the wall for whatever reason or I put it on your screen that you want to believe in it and as long as you want to believe in it I can make anything happen I could show you the rehearsal for the scene I could change you know could change what's happening you think the there, there's this tension in the beginning of the scene where you think Naomi Watts's character Betty at the time is going to bail out of the scene because the because the older guy's getting too intense and then she totally leans into it what what happens is she fulfills every action Actress's fantasy of how the big audition is going to go. In fact, I'm going to audition for this part, but not even have to do it because the producer is going to walk me across the street to where the real movies are happening, what you know, once they, once they recognize me. But I, I think it really has to do with not credibility on the part of the artist or quote unquote maintaining realism, right? Maintaining the stakes, which is what they like to say in every screenwriting class. It's just like there's something on the part of viewers that want the movie to work, that make it work, right? It's like Club Silencio. It's like, hey, there's no band here, but I hear a trumpet, somebody's holding a trumpet, it's moving and it's on the screen, he must be playing the trumpet.
0: It's like watching Singing in the Rain. Like we know, first of all, that Gene Kelly is not singing. He's, He's mouthing in the rain. He's mouthing music, like, but it's so, it's so. The, the, but um, Gene Kelly knew when he directed that movie that the viewer is going to bring a lot to this, and the viewer wants it to be good. The viewer did not come to this movie unless you're miserable, hoping it would be bad. They come wanting to bring their their their. They want a um, verisimilitude. They they want it, right? And Lynch knows that too. All good directors know that. I guess
1: movies are held together by faith, but it's the good faith of the viewer and not necessarily just the artistic integrity of the creator. Welcome back. So in part three, of course, we always talk about the ending or the title or the key takeaways, D- Dan, what do you make of either the title
0: or the ending or the key takeaways? There's a lot going on. Let's talk about, I want to talk about the ending about club silencio when when the, the green haired woman is a silencio. Um, you mentioned before about the trumpet. There's also that great bit where the woman is singing, crying. Rebecca Del Rio. Yeah. in Spanish. And the great, the thing I love about that moment, I'm stealing a bonus moment, is that when she started singing, I thought to myself, why do I know this song? Like, I know this melody. And then eventually I figured out, I'm like, because I can't speak Spanish. And I'm like, oh, this is crying. But And I thought, that's like being in a dream. Like, I know this makes sense in a certain way. And then you catch up to it. So I felt like the guy looking for the, the bum at Winkies. I thought I think that the movie is great. And I think the reason it ends with Club Silencio and she says Silencio, it reminded me of a great line by W.A. Jordan in his poem about Yates. He says, poetry makes nothing happen. And, and think about art, poetry makes nothing happen. Now, part of that means, yeah, it doesn't make anything happen. It doesn't change the world. It doesn't change politics or anything like that. But it also means poetry makes nothing happen. Art makes nothing happen. And that's what this movie shows us. That's what the trumpet bit and the crying bit that she collapses and the music still goes on. That, that the great thing about movies is that th- th- there's nothing, there is no Diane, there is no Betty, the, none of these people exist. The, the places don't even exist, but the movie makes these imaginary things happen. And your reactions as a viewer are proof of that, that, yeah, this thing happened. For the two hours I sat here and, and I was locked in, that thing happened. And uh, it was up there on the screen and the thing happened. And I think that's what, Club Silencio reminds us of, and I think that's what the whole movie reminds us of, is that the power of 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 poetry making nothing happen. Absolutely. I mean, if you if you
1: connect the very last thing you see to the very first thing you see, right? Those people are not dancing with one another, right? Because the first thing you see is them dancing in fifties costume and kind of you know twisting and and doing whatever while the music plays. Like there's no music. They are not dancing to that music. They were not dancing together. There's no pink field where they can all hover in midair and dance. Um, but no matter how often you're reminded of that, as soon as it's on the screen, it it nothing happens. It happens. It happens. Yeah. So, what's your take on the ending or the title? Well, um, <laughs> one thing was before we started recording, um, you said to me, what, "What's your favorite thing about Robert Forster being in the uh, being in the titles?"
0: Is that he gets one line. For literally one scene, he says one line, and when I saw the titles, I'm like, "Oh, Robert Foster's next." We had done Jackie Brown a couple months ago, and he literally says one thing, like, "Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too." And he's never
1: in the movie again. But he says, "But that's one of the most important lines," and I think the reason is because the other detective said she escaped north in the woods, huh? That's that's what you think, and he said, "That's what I think." And so, um, you know, again, here here's my red arrow thing, right? the, the name of the movie that they're supposedly making in the fantasy that's being directed by Justin Theroux is the Sylvia North story, which means North woods, the, the thing, but the thing that stops that from just being some kind of red arrow analysis is because Betty, the entire time that she's Betty, what's going on in Diane's mind and her heart is imagining these escape scenarios because she's not entirely bought into the idea um, that, that, her lover will be dead. It's not something that she actually wants to happen. It's something that she's doing just to react to the vast conspiracy that made her famous, um, while while killing her dreams. Like not only is she not going to be famous, but she's not she's no longer even in the same stratosphere as the person she loves. And the vast Hollywood conspiracy that elevates you know beautiful people is going to rip this beautiful person out of her life. And the only way that she can kick against that force is to, is to make something happen but hope that nothing happens which is what we just talked about right art is nothing is nothing happening and the key is when she knows that it's it's not art right the the dream fails because something happened to connect it to your quote which is what takes her into reality and the the two old people that represent all the goodwill in her life uh come back in horrifying fashion i mean i don't really horrifying i mean i'm not this is not for purposes of this podcast or for exaggeration there is no scene like in friday the 13th that is as scary as those two old people hounding her to kill herself that is um that is the most realistic subjective hounding from your subconscious that you could that you could conceivably had right when a good when a good dream goes bad and i think that 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 really ties it together because this is about everything that's beautiful about the movies and everything that's ugly about the movies. I think David Lynch, who had his fair share of fighting the machine to get projects that he wanted made, starting from the first movie he ever directed uh, up until now, as he continues to try to make movies, is both reacting and kind of kicking against the goads of Hollywood. But from from the point of view of a deep admirer of movies who understands how they work and and. Mulholland Drive is the greatest love letter that you could possibly have because I think that he feels about Hollywood the same way that Diane slash Betty feels about Camilla, which is I I right, I love you. But then if you remember It's a love the, letter,
0: but it's a poison pen letter too.
1: Well, exactly. But if you rem- if you remember the line from the dialogue, from the cheesy dialogue, she says, I hate you. And then she says, I hate us both. And that's, that's, that's what Mulholland Drive is from somebody who's, who needs the movies the same way that Diane needs Camilla. You know, I, I, I hate you. I hate us both. And I think that that's what really holds, that's the tension that holds the movie together and stops it from either being a horrific nightmare or a sentimental story. It's, it's a parody of, of sentimentality, which is undercut by, by a, a kind of
0: reality. Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you've enjoyed our conversation about Mulholland Drive. You could follow us on Twitter at 15MINfilm. You could also catch out catch all of our past episodes on the New Books Network website where they're listed under academic partners. And you can also find us where, Mike? Letterboxd. Find us on Letterboxd. Let us know what to watch next. Great pick, Mike. I said I was 22 years late, but I'm glad I got around. We'll see you next time. Silencio.